0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. We started looking at the uh, book of Colossians last week. It's a letter from Paul to a church he had never visited. A leader in the church named Epaphras, probably the pastor, had reached out to Paul, probably visited him in prison there in Rome, and sought his help in combating some doctrines that were creeping into the church there in Colossae, which, by the way, met in the home of Philemon, who will receive his own letter, which we'll read one of these days. And uh, the error, as we discussed last week, was Gnosticism. And it taught that Jesus was not God, but rather a semi-divine being, whose uh, and that his main mission was to come and enlighten the world, enlighten mankind by granting them special knowledge, uh, special experiences, spiritual knowledge. That he did, again he didn't come in the flesh. He didn't come to redeem our bodies. He came to lift us up and enlighten us by imparting supernatural spiritual mysterious wisdom and paul tackles this idea right off after he makes some introductory remarks about his joy in seeing the fruitfulness of this church because remember they had not tumbled all the way into this error it's something that was creeping into the church and paul i believe gets this letter to them to kind of nip it in the bud and because he's heard good things about this church He's excited for them and he tells them that. And after these introductory remarks, uh, he just lays it out exactly who Jesus is, what Jesus did, what he said. And he makes it abundantly clear, as we discussed. This is all from last week. If you want to get a fuller explanation of this, I encourage you to get last week's message. But he makes it clear that Jesus is not a spiritual guru, he's not a Lord in that sense, with a small l, but he is the Lord. He is God the Son. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He goes on to lay it out in in in, an ultra-clear message, uh, ultra-clear language, that what he came for was nothing less than the salvation of all who would believe in him, and that he accomplished all of that through his death on the cross, that he redeemed us through his blood, as we discussed during the communion. So we're not saved through knowledge, even special knowledge, even spiritually transferred knowledge. We are not saved through legalism. We are not saved through any of the means that the Colossians were starting to toy with. And we wrapped it up with this passage in uh, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your heart, by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now we read on. And I'm going to read through verse 29 and then come back and make some uh, comments. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations but now has been revealed to his saints." To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Now, the first verse in this passage is probably the trickiest thing we're going to have to contend with today, maybe in this whole letter. Because look at what it says there again. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So let me ask you this. What was lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Because I'll tell you what. You read this verse, and the first thing that pops to my mind is, wait a second, uh, is Paul saying he's got to add something to what Jesus did that what Jesus did wasn't enough? And it brings to my mind whole doctrines like the doctrine of purgatory and indulgences, things that the whole Reformation happened because of. Uh, this idea, for those of you who didn't come from that background, or you know, it's not something we talk about here, obviously, the idea of purgatory is like it's a temporary hell. They, those who preach this doctrine, and of course we're mostly talking about Roman Catholics. I'm, the purpose of this part of the message is not to bash them. I know some Catholics who I believe are genuinely saved. I struggle with some of their doctrines, obviously. But one of the things that they believe is uh, that Jesus did accomplish what needed to be accomplished at the cross, and we receive that. And then from that moment, we are little by little saved, that there are uh, uh, ceremonies and uh, means of grace that that basically get us more and more saved. And and, And I'm not doing a very good job of explaining this, but I don't come from that background. But the whole idea is that none of us quite get there. Despite the sacraments, despite everything else, we're not perfect. And so we still need to be purged of what sin remains in us after we die. So the better we are, the more uh, sacred and sanctified we become here, the less time we spend getting that sin burned out of us after we die. But then once we have been purged, where the name purgatory comes from, then we are fit for heaven. And, of course, this is offensive to those of us who embrace the gospel of grace, which says that Jesus Christ finished it. He completed it. He paid the entire price, and there's nothing I can add to it. I can't add to what he did on the cross. I can't add to it with my service. I can't add to it with my punishment. Same with the indulgences. I can't buy any of this back. It's either completely done or it's not, and I believe it is. Paul believed it was. It reminds me also of a conversation, and forgive me those of you who've heard it a half a dozen times, try to hear this story with the ears of somebody who's never heard it before. I'll I'll give you a short version of it, but I had uh, for a number of weeks a really nice guy come to my house uh, on every Saturday for probably 10 weeks who was a Jehovah's Witness, and we would spend an hour or so talking and discussing and kind of arguing. I mean, he knew I didn't agree, but he was very respectful. But I still remember the first meeting we had, and he was laying the groundwork for our future conversations. And I think he was trying to intimidate me, because he told me he had studied this book, he had read it, talking about the Bible so many times. For 35 years, he had dedicated himself to learning this Bible. So he knew what it said. Therefore, he knew what was wrong with the churches in America because they were preaching certain doctrines that weren't in the Bible. And we kind of kicked it off from there. But then once we got to talking about Jesus, still in our first conversation, he said, I asked him, I said, well, what was the purpose? What did Jesus come for? And he said, uh, well, uh, I said, what's, once once we accept this doctrine, I said, well, I guess why I said, what's our mission? What are we supposed to be doing? What's our purpose in life? And he said, Well, our whole purpose is to finish the work that Jesus started. Now, and I wanted clarification. I didn't want to jump on that immediately because I kind of understand what he's saying. He did give us a mission. You know, go do the works that I do and greater works, all right? Do the things that you did when you were with me. Do the things I've commanded you to do. But to phrase it like that, to finish the work that Jesus started, I said, well, let's make sure we're talking about the same thing. Because I believe we have a mission. But if you're going to phrase it like that, what did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? What did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? And his response was, I'm not aware that Jesus ever said that which shocked me because he had made this big case about how much he had read of the Bible and how could you not know Jesus said that? I mean let's have a discussion about what he meant. What is finished? Okay? But to start with, I don't think Jesus said that. Well, then we're kind of starting two separate places. Anyway, he did say that. Right? And it is finished was an announcement of the cancellation of our de- of our sin debt. His work was done. He finished what he came to do. We don't pick it up then and say, well, Jesus started the salvation process. Now we got to finish it by by walking toward and eventually into sinless perfection. That's not how it works. All right? So uh, this idea that more has to be done and Paul saying, uh, I'm filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ with my suffering. What does he mean by that? Because it can't be in order to complete the work of redemption. Paul, more than anybody, makes the case that that can't be done. So what do you make of this statement? And I believe he means nothing more or less than this, that that he knows that suffering is a part of his life as a Christian, and as a minister. He knows that he's going to have to endure some things. Jesus told his disciples that they would suffer, that they'd be persecuted, that they'd be hated. And Paul's saying, you know what? I have suffered. Jesus told Paul himself, I'm going to show you what things you're going to suffer for my name's sake. And Paul's saying, I have suffered. But I haven't suffered like Christ suffered. I'm not claiming that my sufferings add up to what Jesus did. And I'm willing to go all the way. There's a gap between what I've suffered and what Jesus suffered. And I'm willing to suffer more. Even if it costs me my life, like it did Jesus, I'm willing to go that far. I will suffer the loss of everything if that's what it takes to finish my race. He's not talking about, Jesus didn't do enough for you with his suffering, so I'm going to add to that with my suffering. He's simply saying, I love you guys. I'm not just writing you a letter Just to say, hey, I'm invested in you. Even though I've never met you, you are an outgrowth of my ministry. Epaphras was converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And then Epaphras goes and starts this church in Colossae. And then Epaphras comes and says, hey, I think we're getting into some stuff that's bad here. Can you help us? And Paul says... Man, I am willing to go to great lengths. I'm in prison now, and I'm going to dedicate this time to you. I am with you in spirit. I'm watching you. I want to get these reports. I love you guys, and I am willing to suffer even more because that's how much I love you. Do you see the big difference here? He's not saying, I am going to finish the redemptive work of Christ in you. Simply saying, I am willing to suffer even more than I've already suffered because Jesus is my example. All right. And we read on. Uh, So, he's saying he's willing to do that for Jesus. He's willing to do it for them. And then we come to something really beautiful here. When he says in verse 25, let's finish verse 24 again there. "For, For the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Look back if you want, uh, or you can just listen as I read it, in Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to read, starting reading in verse 8, where it says, Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Then we'll skip the parentheses part and pick it up in verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, Jesus gave gifts to men and the gifts that he gave were ministers. We talked about this when we were back in Ephesians, but I remind you, God did not give me the gift of being a pastor. He made me a pastor so that he could give me to you. I love saying that. If you want to know why I walk around like I'm God's gift to you, it's because I am. God's gift. He's the one who gave me to you, so you better like me. (laughs) Nothing is more embarrassing to a parent. Not that I've ever seen this in my kids. You, You take them to Christmas at Grandma and Grandpa's or someplace else or a birthday party, and they open a present that somebody is there watching them open, and they go, what do you tell him? You coach him. No matter what's in that present, you smile and you like it and you say thank you. So that's what I want to hear today. Pastor Scott, I thank God for you every day. <laughs> it's for your benefit. makes God happy because he's the one who gave me to you. Remember that, all right? But all these ministry gifts. Oh, he is gifted to be this. No, he's gifted to you. And this is what Paul says. I was given this stewardship for you. I love how centered he is. how, how, How focused he is on serving others. Verse 25. Which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. And then he brings up that word mystery again. You remember the mystery. He's referred to it many times. The mystery being the Gentiles being grafted into the family of God through Christ. And what exactly is the outcome of all this? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Man, oh man. Read this again. The mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Now when we read that, once again, at least when I read that, knowing my own imperfections, I kind of get this Man, one minute I think it's all grace, it's all done by Jesus, and now it looks like. I've got to achieve perfection before I'm fit for the kingdom. But what he's saying is, it's Christ in you that is the hope of glory. You are already in God's eyes. He uses that term right there in the sight of God. There is perfection. Why? Because you are in Christ. Do we need perfection to be in the presence of God? Yes. Oh, no. No, we've got it. Where? I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. You know where it's perfect? In Christ. And only in Christ. In Christ alone. That's where our hope is. Jesus is perfect. We are in Jesus. So God can see us as perfect. This really is the center of the gospel message, isn't it? careful reading that when you see stuff like that. Now, it doesn't mean we don't strive. This is where Paul is going next. He doesn't say, since you're in Christ and he's your only hope, it doesn't matter what you do. It's absolutely not what he's saying. We absolutely do, owe God, everything, and we should strive to please him for his sake because we love him, but also for the sake of the world that needs to see the difference in us. We just need to keep it separate. Nothing we do adds to our salvation right? All right. So then he goes on to say at the beginning of the next chapter, we're going to fir- skip reading the first few verses because I want to get, I want to make sure I have time to talk about them, uh, talk about what comes next. But what he goes on to say is uh, how he agonizes over them, He's thinking about them, he's, he's, he's kind of reaffirming his connection with them, even though he hasn't been there. He talks about them and the Laodiceans, another church he hasn't visited yet, but is also another outgrowth of his ministry, and many other believers he hasn't met. He's aware that many of these churches, maybe all of them, are outgrowths of his ministry, like Epaphras went and took the word he received from Paul, took it back to Colossae, started a church. Many others had done the same thing. And he tells them that he holds them close to his heart, that God's revealing things to him, that he's he's there in spirit, and he rejoices with them, but he also warns them here. Pick it up in verse 8 of chapter 2, where he says, "...beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ." For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Just drops that there, uh, warning them of fruitless philosophy. And this, again, this is where they were headed. People coming in, not with praises to the finished work of Jesus Christ, not with challenges to, uh, to um, do like Paul was doing and uh, enjoy, and rejoice in the fellowship of his sufferings, but to come in with this fresh, these fresh philosophies and talk about being enlightened and talk about your body doesn't matter. And you remember, as we talked about last week, what that actually led to was sexual immorality because they believed it didn't matter what their bodies did. Their bodies were going to burn no matter what. Their bodies couldn't be redeemed. Their bodies were evil. It's just spiritual. So let's concentrate. When we're together, we'll talk about spiritual knowledge and then they would get over into some other stuff, which we're going to talk about next. But he's saying this philosophies that you find so liberating and enlightening, you're actually being cheated out of your inheritance if you embrace them. All right? Remember, what counts is what is in him. Now, the next thing he, hit, he uh, hits is uh, beginning verse 11. In him, you, also, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary, contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Wow. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, so he nails down the, the spiritual truth there. He has finished all of this, nailed, nailed it to the cross. Always remember. Uh, when, when the devil tries to get you under condemnation for your sin, you just remind him that your sin and your sickness and your poverty was left nailed to the cross. All right? All that was laid on Jesus. And then uh, this is where it gets kind of interesting. Well, I think it's all interesting. But look what he says next in verse 16. Starting in verse 16. So since these things are true, since our salvation is in the finished work of Christ, since you're not going to be saved through this new and fresh philosophy, and since it isn't uh, circumcision, and by extension, what's Paul talking about when he talks about circumcision? He's not just talking about circumcision, but the law, right? We know this from looking at practically every other letter we've read of his. But since since it's all been done through Christ... Here's the outcome. Here's one outcome, beginning in verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. We will talk about that specifically, but not today. Intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concerning which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now this is heavy stuff. So let's think about what he's saying and what he's not saying. Going back to what we read in Romans, what we've read in Corinthians, and, and other places, but I know in those two books he hits it pretty directly, and here he hits it again. The big, one of the big issues, and it's hard for us to get our heads around because it's not something we think about, was stuff like uh, foods that had been declared unclean. Certain aspects of the Mosaic law. I mean, it says touch not. You know, there were people who were so rigid in their Judaism that if they came into physical contact with a Gentile, they would make a spectacle, uh, making sure everybody knew that they were going to go take a bath. They were, they were going to go get clean because they had come in contact with uncleanness. You weren't supposed to eat certain types of animals, and you weren't supposed to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul has already addressed that with some of his audiences, some of the recipients of some of his letters, saying, these things really don't matter. All things are permissible to me. Now, not all things are profitable. And first and foremost, as a minister of God, I'm going to avoid doing things. I'm not going to eat things in in the presence of certain people because I know this is a weakness for them. And, I'm, and my, my concern is to have them come to Christ, not not convince them that it's okay to eat meat. That's not my that's not my ministry. But here he is telling them, because what one of the one of the uh, outworkings of this Gnosticism is this rigid the, these physical uh, toils that they would put themselves through. Um, you know there there were people, we have records of this from back in the day. I'm not saying it was necessarily the case here in Colossae, but they would make a big deal. They would only eat dry crusts of bread and only drink water. They would only eat enough to keep them from starving to death because they felt this was punishing or disciplining their evil flesh. And you see somebody, and you can take that to any extreme, people who will not touch me. I have not had a soda in 20 years. I have never touched a drop of alcohol. I have never eaten any, uh, I was reading an article back, you know, back when I, yeah, I still do read exercise articles, nutrition articles, and there was a guy who, he's not a big bodybuilder or anything, but he's one of the, supposedly one of the most fit men in the world. And uh, he says, the reason I'm able to do this, he goes, I just have great self-control, he says, the only time I eat sweets is I'll have a slice of cake on my birthday. I'm like, man, this is, this is self-control. I imagine, I, and I wonder to myself sometimes, what would I look like today if the only sweets I ever had was a slice of cake on my birthday? Or a whole cake on my birthday, for that matter. How would I feel? And Paul, and, and, and so it gets people's attention when you see people doing extreme things. To discipline the flesh. Paul's saying, it, there's a, it looks like there's some good in that. But it's all false. It's an appearance of uh, this, this rigidity is perceived to be wisdom and, and, and religion. But it's not. It's, it, it serves absolutely no purpose. He's not saying that it's okay to do whatever. You've heard me say this before. I'm not convinced from scripture that, that uh, drinking alcohol is a sin. But I do think there are compelling reasons for Christians to avoid it. Okay, just because you can't show me chapter and verse that it's a sin doesn't mean that it's okay. Certainly not okay to the degree that some people enjoy it, right? But to make your stand on, not only did I make a commitment to Jesus Christ at age 12, but I've never touched a drop of alcohol, leave that second part off because it adds nothing to your salvation. That's what he's saying, all right? If you want to exercise every day, if you want to be able to say, I have guarded my health by running, I've never run less than five miles a day, great. But that's not the source of your healing, is it? It's the finished work of Christ. We cannot, my goodness, it's one thing to see. You see somebody, they come down with some horrible disease, they get sick, they die, and you say, well, they never did take very good care of themselves. As if that makes the sickness and death any less of the devil. And what's wrong with that is. We all know somebody who got sick and died. And you're like how could it have happened to them? They took such good care of themselves. Right? If you've got a doctor friend. Talk to them. They will scratch their head and tell you. It is amazing how some people live as long as they do. And it's frustrating how, how young some people die. No good reason for it. Heard one say, you know, you can pick your lifestyle, you can pick your diet, but you can't pick your parents. Talking about the genetic influences. So where's our hope? In Christ. What's my hope of long life? The word says I can have it. Says it's God's will for me. Does that mean I shouldn't be a steward of this? Doesn't mean that at all. It just means I can't take credit for it. I should behave, I should live a certain way, I should dwell on certain things. He's going to tell me what they are here in the next chapter. But those things don't add anything to what Jesus did on the cross. And this is such a, it's a bigger tension than most of us realize day to day. I think we're all far enough along, most of us anyway, are far enough along theologically to know that it was the finished work of Jesus Christ that saves us. I think we have a hard time separating, our, separating that truth from the, I can't get any more saved. It's not that we fear hell, but we do feel like we're earning something with God. Now, there is the issue of rewards. But I'm talking about here and now, what, when Paul wraps this up, disciplining the body, being harsh with the body, denying certain things. Uh, being, you know, I can't go do this today because it's a new moon, it's a Sabbath, I can't do this. And Paul's like, all these things are just shadows. They're indications of Jesus Christ who's already been here. We've got the real thing now. We don't need to observe these things. And they're they're just an appearance of a holiness that isn't always there. And when he wraps it up and says that uh, they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now that's a tough pill to swallow because... You know, one of the things I always say when we we talk about fasting is we are, we are exercising discipline over our bodies by denying one of the strongest biological urges that's imprinted in us, the urge to eat. I mean, it's there, it's a survival thing, right? And if we figure if we can master that, if I know I can go three weeks without eating or three weeks without eating something, then that means I can also exercise that discipline in other areas of my life. And it's true. But what he's saying here is, just the fact that you can exercise this kind, even if you just eat bread and water, that does nothing to renew your mind when it comes to the desires of the flesh. Eating only bread and water, exercising every day, is not going to make you less lustful. But the person who thinks, well... I have disciplined my flesh in this regard, starts to feel a little prideful. And then they put themselves in a position where this lust can be acted upon. And then the world is shocked when a minister or a well-known Christian falls in this arena. And you think, but they were such a good man. They were such a disciplined man. But, and again, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here. But this is what Paul's saying. Just because you live a certain way, in a very ordered life, those things are not necessarily a safeguard, certainly not a guarantee against indulging the flesh in some other area. So there's got to be some other motivation for this, and this is where he's going to go next. And I think I will save it for next week, because I want to I do, uh, do it diligently. But next week is when we're going to we're be talking about what carnality is, what it looks like, and what its dangers are for the believer and for the church as a whole. Okay, why don't you stand up with me? Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.